Welcome back to the flip side. Galen Clavio here along with Brian Moritz. We're back with more podcasting goodness as Brian, we've hit the halfway mark of the summer. Um, unfortunately, the 4th of July has been and gone. How was your Independence Day? It was wonderful. Thank you. We had a, it was a weirdly extended holiday because we had the weekend, of course, and at the, uh, one one of our towns, one of the towns near us, had the big fireworks show on Saturday night. Okay, so we had the fireworks show on Saturday on Can- you know the the Fourth of July Independence Day celebration on Canada Day, which okay, of course, whatever. Yeah, it, you know. it was it was a good time, except for these seven dollars it cost to uh, get the kids in the bounce houses. That seemed extreme, but uh, but no, it was good. And then we had uh, how, so we, like what. How, what did they get for that amount of money? Like, was it so, like, no, there were two bounce houses. One of the, like the little, I don't know, 10 foot by 10 foot bounce castles that you that you can rent. And then they had the other one where you could kind of like go through the obstacle course and then down the slide. It was unlimited sliding, but you know, the, 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 the way, the way they were sneaky about it is like everyone sits along the edge. And then in the middle of this like part, like, grassy knoll in field areas where the bounce houses are. So you get the kids running all the way there. They're already bought in and they're in line. And Oh, by the way, you got to buy a ticket. You can't not buy a ticket at that point because then you're that guy. Then you're the jerk parent. So it was really a ripoff for the $7 for $7. Um, But then we had, my wife had to work because she works in the private sector. She has a real job unlike us. So she had to work on Monday, but then we had yesterday and it was good. We had the, the parade in our town. We had a, the cookout, the bonfire, the quasi-legal fireworks display that my friend put on it on his, on his at, at his place. So it was good. How about yours? Oh, I mean, ours was fine. There, there wasn't a whole lot uh, to it that was, I guess, unique. Uh, there was a lot of grilling involved, right? And uh, you know, did some, did decided to do some chicken. Uh, didn't want to do, uh, you know, I figured, you know, last year and the previous year was beef. So, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's go with the other official American meat. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, just had some family in town, a lot of fireworks all over the place. Um, you know, both when you've got two dogs and a baby, uh, the, fireworks not, are your, are your enemy. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They didn't really handle them badly, but that's cause okay. we, we didn't like seek them out. I mean, they were in the neighborhood, but it wasn't that big of a deal. So no, oh. it was good. I mean, the weather was nice and mm-hmm. great. And uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty chill. We went out on the lake one day, and you know, so that was nice. It was a pretty, pretty chill weekend all the way around. So how did you grill the chicken, or what did you do with the chicken on the grill? Oh, I mean, I made two different varieties. I made a Caribbean jerk, uh, you know, with half the chicken, and then uh, made a, a barbecue, like a mustard-based barbecue, on the other. Uh, but it's just you know, a pretty straightforward procedure. Grilled some corn to go with that. Grilled some shrimp uh, to go with both of them. So you know, really tried. It was a very white meat. Fourth uh, right. of July. Yeah, <laughs> excellent, very cool. And um, so, yeah, we got a couple topics that we bandied about talking about today. A couple of them uh, based upon my, as we were talking before we uh, hit record button, the impending garage sale that I have and the weirdly existential crisis that one box gave me. Um, but we also had a Fourth of July to- related Fourth of July topic. By the way, I know season f- season this season five season five. We've moved away from the drinking, but I've got a uh, a wonderful big ditch brewing company, Low Bridge Golden Ale tonight. We're nice. recording this in the evening as opposed to the daytime podcast that we've been doing. So now I can drink and have it let be less weird. 
So, um, yeah, I saw you're drinking water. Are you still off the beer for now, or? Yeah, just you know, trying to I'm trying to lose some pounds before we get to uh, to the actual school year. I feel gotcha. like I'm not going to be able to make up that time during the year, so I might as well uh, deprive myself right now. <laughs> Good, smart, smart move. So, one of the things that came up that you wanted to talk about was related to the Fourth of July and related to the Declaration of Independence. And uh, you wanna you wanna start us off on that one? Yeah, I mean, this was this a lot of these things that happen on social media. I, I try to purposefully not get too wrapped up in them uh, because, frankly, I think there's a little bit uh, too much piling on that goes on within the the world of social media. Um, but this one really took me to a spot that I didn't think that I was going to get to. So for those who didn't, for those who weren't paying attention. Uh, on the 4th of July, the uh, the National Public Radio Twitter feed, the NPR feed, decided that they would start tweeting out line by line the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which seems pretty darn, you know, uh, you know inauspicious. Or not inauspicious, but uh, innocuous, I guess is right. the word. I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, it the, the whole, like, the date, yeah, it it, it it checks out, right? Right, Brian? right. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes, it does. It, it, there was indeed a timely factor to doing it yesterday. Yeah. So. so 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 they start tweeting it out line by line, and the the problem that uh, they ran into, I, I guess maybe they didn't run into it. Maybe um, maybe problem is the wrong word for it. But as they were tweeting out these lines line by line, um, they started getting responses from people on Twitter and they were not nice responses. Many of them. Um, So it was a very bizarre kind of, of process that we saw take place. So, um, you know, many people on Twitter seemed to be taking um, the stuff that NPR was saying in a negative manner. Uh, So I think that the one that got the most reaction, this one got 297 replies on Twitter was, the line in the Declaration of Independence that says, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Right. Now, written about King George III, long deceased, like, pretty well defined that this is about King George III. Right. Written by Uh, Thomas Jefferson, also long dead. Yeah, well, we can be fairly certain that Jefferson was not tweeting or not writing about uh, Trump during the Declaration of Independence. That would have been quite a... I mean, I know that the Founding Fathers were into some interesting substances and they had the whole Illuminati thing going for them, but I... And they, I, and, and they drank like fishes, like absolute fishes. They did. Yeah, I mean, you had to at that point. I mean, they, the, to escape the drudgery of everyday life. I mean, no, no, no Twitter. What would you do with your days, frankly? But anyway, uh, that and other lines from the Declaration of Independence uh, seem to get some people upset people reading it as a, a subtle dig at Trump. And it's like, I, you know, I mean, I, that that the whole thing that got me, whether you viewed it as a subtle dig at Trump or a not subtle dig at Trump, like w- the idea that, that quoting the Declaration of Independence on any 4th of July would be some kind of, you know, oblique political statement, mm-hmm. um, that – that might be the tipping point for me is saying, wow, if people are really having that reaction to words they should have known existed anyway, mm-hmm. that's, that's a real problem. Uh, at least I hate to, I hate to extrapolate stuff out societally because as we know, 
there aren't that many people on Twitter compared to the entire population. But of the people who are politically active on Twitter, that that one that one threw me a little bit. I was I was not expecting to have a negative reaction to the reaction, but I actually did. It's funny because I saw I didn't see the actual tweets. I saw start the starting reaction to it and like the people and, and, and the reaction to it. And, you know, let's, let's be very clear. It was Trump supporters who thought that NPR was trolling them and insulting the president by quoting what Thomas Jefferson wrote about King George the third, 241 years ago. Um, yeah, there, and what's, so what's funny about it is, you know, it's not they do, they do this every year by the way okay i, I was I'm, I'm sure they did i didn't know if they did or not but they do it every year and it's not like like you have to be pretty far down the troll rabbit hole if that's a thing to think that like npr would tweet out take the time to write type out in tweet form the entire declaration of independence which isn't that long but it's still a pretty good tweet story in order to get to that, like that one that's insulting princes or something like that as a subtle dig toward Donald Trump. The other thing that kind of blew me away on it is if there is a side of the political spectrum that would, uh, that usually adopts the language of the declaration of independence and kind of like the sentiments of the declaration of independence, it's your traditional Trump supporters. Like it's the right wing, it's the conservative, it's the small government's uh, point of view, you know, the don't tread on me folks. Like they're very much the much more the kind of the original intent, the small government, um, you know, because you can read the, you know, one of the beauty things about the Declaration of Independence is you can read that and you can read that as a criticism of current liberal policies of the size of the government, of the bloat of the government, blah, 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 blah. And and so I, I just I found it funny that you know, the, the, the side of the political spectrum that would normally embrace the, the Jeffersonian ideals of the Declaration of Independence were now reacting as if they were insulting dear leader Trump. It was, it was crazy to kind of see that. And, and, I, and, I, and I did look up some of the people who were tweeting this stuff. And, uh, and what, what always strikes me on this is the defiance that they have, right? Like the, the proper response I think that we would have would be like, oh, either delete the tweet because, and like, oh, whoops, my bad, completely didn't realize they were in the middle of a thing there and walk <laughs> away and go on with your life. But no, there's that defiance on it. You know, there's the, and, and it, it, you know, is this the battle you really want to fight? And the, 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 is this the hill you want to die on? I just don't see it. No. And it seems to be something as, you know, it's kind of, the the larger element of every online debate now, which is, you know, not just overreactions, but not backing down, right. uh, you know, and I think to some degree it's because um, it's, a, it's a weird combination of the anonymity or relative anonymity is the wrong word. It's not anonymity. It's the, the lack of immediate physical proximity that Twitter right. provides along with the fact that, that there are other people on Twitter who are reacting in similar ways to the same material sure. gives a kind of a weird strength in numbers, uh, you know, element to the process as well. And so I think that that's those are the things we got to look at with this. Um, you know, I, I just I just think it's funny that you can tweet the you know the context or without context the words of a document that was written, you know, in 1776 and those words are going to be viewed in a a way that engenders offense by right. people who are supportive of a particular political leader. I, I just, it's, 
it's funny how that can touch a nerve. I think right. that was that was that was the fascinating thing about it to me. So, which founding father do you think would be best on Twitter? Oh, um, well, you know, I mean, uh, Sam Adams. I think almost certainly. Um, okay. I mean, I think for reasons I don't think I even need to have to go into at this point. Right. But uh, I mean, I think Ben Franklin probably would be a pretty good guy. A uh, pretty good follow on Twitter, but Franklin would be the early adopter of like all technology. I remember reading the biography of his. I forget who wrote it. Uh, it came out I don't know years ago, but like that was the idea. It was like he would be the early adopter of all this stuff. He would be I, the first. Yeah, I just think I, I think there would have been too many like you know like uh, Snapchats of Ben Franklin in compromising positions in Paris to like really like. His, I think his social media presence would have been very hard to maintain over time right. with that. So that's that's the only thing I would be concerned about with him. So, I mean, the easy answer, of course, and this is pop culture but I think it's true, would be Hamilton would be really good on Twitter. I think John Adams would actually be outstanding on Twitter because he was a cantankerous, angry, argumentative type. So um, I also think so the dark horse in the, in the Founding Father Twitter draft would be Thomas Paine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i can I mean, see that yeah because he you know once common sense came out and you know, like i think he would be he kind of was like kind of be like the glenn greenwald of current twitter like constantly throwing the firebombs at the establishment and i think he would he would be he would be he would be the fun one yeah. um, washington washington i'm reading the biography of washington right now he would be useless on twitter yeah. he would be <laughs> he would just be the well done you know well done uh congratulations team on championship victory and nothing <laughs> really exciting <laughs> I, I this i'm about to think about this further but uh yeah anyway uh so yeah that that happened this weekend um other things that happened we had a uh, you know i did not cook steak myself uh although i have in the past on the fourth of july but uh there was a an article on 538 which was a follow-up to a piece that they'd done before where they talked about meat preferences, particularly steak preferences, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that they are cooked uh, uh, amongst Americans. And so uh, they, they work with Longhorn Steakhouse, which, um, you know, I mean, that's a pretty middle-of-the-road steak chain. So we're getting a pretty right. good cross-section of society here. And they they looked at orders for almost a solid year, from two, May of 2016 to May of 2017, to find out what percentage of people were ordering their steak what ways. Right. And so the, the, they posed the question on, on Facebook, are people who prefer their steaks well done wrong? Which I answered with an unqualified yes, yes. they're wrong. Yes. Right. Uh, but it was interesting looking at the breakdown here. So of the 100% of people who ordered steaks, 2.5% ordered rare, yeah. 22.5% ordered medium rare, 37.5% ordered medium, mm-hmm. 25.8% medium well and 11.7% well done. So based off of that, your reactions? I mean, I mean, that's a pretty, I, I'm not surprised by any of those numbers. That seems like a pretty good, you know, bell curve distribution uh, of the numbers. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you think of when you think of something like Longhorn Steakhouse, I think you're going to skew higher to the medium wells and the wells because it's it's a middle-of-the-road steakhouse, but it's still a chain kind of strip mall, mall area steakhouse. It's not a higher-end steakhouse where, like, more, you know, steak aficionados would go. So it's kind of a – which is, I guess, good, but I, I think that is, that is telling. Um, 
you know, nothing about this really surprised me. Um, maybe the 11% at, at well done was a little higher than I would have, well, definitely higher than I would have liked, higher than I would have maybe anticipated. But I don't know. It, it seemed about normal. 22, you know, I'm a, for years I've been medium. I've started going into medium, medium rare as I kind of work my way back into kind of the proper way, I think is the understood way to proper way to eat a steak is medium rare. Um, but I don't know. It, 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 I think one thing that I do find interesting about this is, again, kind of how everything becomes political, especially in the social media world we live in in this era. And it's a lot. It's a kind of a talking point because apparently President Trump eats his gets his always gets steak, always gets it very well done and eats it with ketchup. Right. Which is an abomination among all all taste and food and, and, right. and sense. But I also feel like that becomes like this weird. It can be played. I don't think it really is, but it can be played as this weird, you know, anti-elitist way of how you should order your steak. And I'm an American and cook it and eat it with hot. And, you know, it, it that makes it weird to me. But I don't know. The actual cooking distribution seemed normal to me. What about you? Yeah, the distribution seems normal. I mean, you know, on the on the, the Trump thing, since that's, of course, what a lot of people jumped at when even this came out. Right. I, I think – First of all, it's always weird that the ketchup thing gets thrown in. I I don't think there's much difference, frankly, between ordering your steak and having it with ketchup and ordering your steak and having it with, like, A1 sauce. Oh, like, that, yeah, that's that's a good point. You yeah. know, I mean, because, I mean, one's sweeter and the other one's more, like, vinegar-based. It's like, I mean, it kind of depends on – I personally, I've gotten to a point where, you know, I I don't really do sauce with steak. If I do sauce with steak, it's going to be like a chimichurri style sauce, you know. Yeah. Um, so the ketchup part doesn't bother me too much. I think the to take the Trump thing real quick and then to blow it up into the macro. I think the problem I have with Trump ordering his steaks well done is that if you're wealthy enough to order steak on a regular basis, which he obviously is, um, like the whole the like to some degree you want to eat things in in their best possible state and right. to voluntarily take something like a steak um and you know take what makes it good and you know put it in a position where it's going to be below average just mm-hmm. seems counterintuitive you know i mean there are people don't understand beef very well you know mm-hmm. i mean there there are certain cuts of beef brisket's a great example you don't want your brisket cooked like a steak no. Because brisket is, you know, got all these tough connective fibers in it that you really have to cook low and slow. You want to actually get it up to like 190, 195 degrees, which mm-hmm. would be ridiculous on a steak. Uh, but steak's not like that. Like the whole idea of a steak in the body of a cow is that it is meat without all of those connective tissues. It's got a lot of, of fat, you know, ideally marbled through it. Mm-hmm. So to just take that and to voluntarily like, you just just destroy it on the grill doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, particularly for someone with the money that, that Trump has. So that's, I think, the big thing. There, it's more of a class thing, uh, more than anybody else, sure. more than anything right. else. But I think, it, uh, on the whole, my biggest issue with the people who order well done is it's like, what what are you getting out of the, the process of eating a piece of tough meat? Like, what's what's the psychology that goes in to ordering that in the first place. Like you, right. when you take a ribeye, for instance, and you cook it well done, you might as well have ordered a cut of meat that was significantly less expensive, cooked it to that degree, and you would have gotten 
frankly, the exact same output. So like you're basically just throwing money away on something that could have been good, but you screwed up, uh, you know, by your own inability to figure out like what the, the best way of eating it is. Right. I mean, part of it, you know, my, I grew up eating inadvertently, inadvertently eating steaks while done because my parents, when they cook them and that's how my dad made steaks and we, and kind of, as I said, I've been kind of working my way backward from that. And I, and I feel like a part of it as someone who kind of, I don't want to say struggles with it, but has thought about this is it can be unsettling if you're not used to having a lot of red in your meat or a lot of like cooler areas in your meat. You know, I, I, I think that it can be a psychological block for people who aren't used to it. You know, not somebody who eats steak a lot like Trump presumably does, but I think that can be a psychological barrier where you, you get in like, this isn't cooked, this isn't done. And that kind of tricks all sorts of things. Like you think of chicken, you think of pork, you think of all kind of like the white meats that need to be cooked all the way through or like you don't want to have raw. Well, well, but okay, this is, this is where it gets interesting because if you follow the development of food science as it's gone along here over the last 20 years. So I remember when, when we used to cook turkeys for Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. I remember the done temperature for turkey used to be 185 degrees like that was what you had to get it to or otherwise everybody's going to die of salmonella or, or right whatever, or trichinosis not trichinosis is the pig that's one. pork yeah um then all of a sudden like 10 years ago they revised it and wow now it's 165 degrees and it's really 160 degrees and in fact you can actually cook your chicken to less than that and have it retain a lot of juiciness but but okay. as you said there's such a paranoia about we're going to die if we don't cook this to a certain temperature. Fish is like this. I think Americans would eat a lot more fish if they realized that they were actually overcooking it by 25 to 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, if you cook a piece of salmon, I think the FDA reg- recommended temperature is still 145 degrees. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's supposed to be about 120 to 125 degrees. And right. it's still perfectly safe. And it still tastes perfectly good. We're even starting to see... Um, you know, people starting to eat rare pork and, you know, that's like, you know, vapors, like fainting cows (laughs) with that, you know, even five years ago. But, but what we found is that, you know, so many of these regulations date back to our agrarian past where, you know, you know, pigs were living in their own filth and, you know, so were cows and, and the, the process of actually making the beef was not very secure. Making the pork was not secure. And so you ended up with situations where, you know, these, the, the meat that you were eating wouldn't have been safe unless you killed off all the bacteria. And it's like, we've gotten so much better at food preparation on, on like the producer end of things that we don't need it to be like that anymore. And it's just upsetting to me as someone who loves meat and loves mm-hmm. cooking that people, even with, even when presented that information, seem unwilling to adapt to the new surroundings. Yeah. Are you a medium rare guy? Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, you know, I, in fact, to, I mean, to be honest, um, I mean, I, my thing is this. I think medium rare is perfect for for a ribeye, for a T-bone. Uh, you know, if, I, if I've got like a, a, a tenderloin or a filet mignon, I mean, that's a rare cut okay. right there. Um, you know, my big thing is, um, you know, the combination of the way that you cook it and the cut of the beef itself. Uh, from the, Not the cut, but the, the, the grade of the beef itself. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people when, you know, one of the problems that they run into is they'll order a, like a choice level beef and then that'll get cooked. And if it's cooked medium rare, it might be stringy because 
that's not as marbled. So therefore it doesn't handle the lower temperature quite as much. So, um, you know, I think the problem here is golden corral actually, because they, the problem you know, with they, everything is golden corral. Yeah. I mean, because their, their level of beef or any meat that they cook there is, is so low. And yet people have it in their brains that, you know, they want more of everything. Like, like there, there's a mentality that people would rather have like a, a choice level porterhouse, which is a huge steak, over a prime level, you know, New York strip. Where it's like, you know, the, the New York strip at the prime level, even though it's less steak, is going to be much better for you. It's like the full fat yogurt versus low fat yogurt. People would rather have, you know, a, a cup of the low fat yogurt, even though it tastes a lot worse than the full fat yogurt. Right. Um, simply because they think that they're getting more for less impact calorically, and they're and they're they're actually just cheating themselves to a large degree. Yeah. So, well, we have a, I have a fancy dinner I'm going to uh, in a couple of nights. So I may, maybe I'll maybe I'll be uh, uh, adventurous and go rare on my steak, or at least medium rare. So try it. Make it make it happen. You know. So have you ever done the Pittsburgh like the black and blue where it's like seared and raw, seared on the outside or on the inside? Yeah, I've done it. I mean, okay. I think. My my thing is this with with the like really rare blue steak. It really depends on on how good of a grade of beef it is, uh, you know. Because I want I want there to be a, a combination of of flavor, juiciness, but also, you know, I hate it when I when the when the cut is it's undercooked to the point that I have trouble like chewing it and effectively consuming it. I think that that's, that's where you get into trouble with, with steak. It's like much like I don't like it when people decide that they want to, you know, you know, throw theirs into hell and, and then pull it back out having a complete chart. <laughs> I also don't like it when, um, you know, if, if the cut of beef can stand it great, but if it's not cooked enough, then that's not as enjoyable of experience as it would be just a little bit warmer. Gotcha. So one thing we did want to talk about that kind of touches on our day jobs a little bit is the current ongoings at Fox Sports 1. Uh, since we last talked and we talked a lot about the video, the push to video, um, the Fox Sports 1 leader, Jamie Horowitz, that's his name, right? I'm getting that right. Jamie Horowitz. Uh, Jamie Horowitz has been fired, uh, allegedly, uh, according to reporting from SI on uh, sexual harassment counts, which, you know, is literally the, in the Fox handbook of what you're supposed to do if you're leading one of their entertainment departments. Um, but it, but it, it does kind of, it, you know, Richard Deich has a, has a good piece up on SI.com today. Uh, we'll put this, put it in show notes for tonight's, uh, for this episode about kind of the mood of, of this Fox sports, which is apparently not good and kind of where they go now and kind of what they, and what their play is now. And I know you wanted to talk about this. I'm interested in your thoughts. So like if you're Fox sports and this has happened, we have the move to the, the online push video push, coupled with losing the guy who was like, this was his vision. Where does Fox Sports go now? Well, it's a really good question. And it's one of those that I don't, I don't know if there's a good answer to it. I hadn't, uh, you know, you, you're mentioning of the, of the Deitch piece about morale was actually not one that I knew existed. I've been, I've been busy all day. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, now that I'm reading it, it brings up some interesting points about who's in place Um you know, it's uh, – there's two bad things happened here. Um, one, you you hired a guy. He brought in all of his own people. He let go of people that were there before, and now you've let go of that guy. And so now you've got, like, the worst of both worlds because now you have 
an inorganic workplace, as I call it, like one that has not grown over time uh, together, combined with a place that doesn't seem to have a clear path or direction forward. Um, We can debate, as Fox Sports 1 would like us to, I guess, uh, (laughs) whether or not their direction was actually eventually going to work. I mean, this idea that they were going to center everything around debate shows and that they were under, going to undercut ESPN, uh, you know, from that perspective, on a ratings perspective, I have serious doubts that that was actually going to work. I know that mm-hmm. you do as well. Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, I think that there is an issue here, which is that at least there was a clear vision. It might not have been the right vision, but at right. least there was a vision about what they wanted to be, and they were moving in that direction. And now that vision, uh, at least in the, in the visage of, of, of Horowitz, is gone. You know, my my personal feeling on Fox Sports 1 and, and the direction they need to go is they, they really need to figure out how can they be an important player in the marketplace without descending into parity while also being able to compete on a regular basis on the strengths of what they've got. And, and I mean, they do have some strong properties. I mean, you know, if you think about it, they've got – They've got college football. Uh, they've, you know, they got the Big Ten now. They've got the Pac-12. They've got the Big Twelve. They've got soccer. Um, they've got baseball. You know, so it's not like the cupboard is bare. Um, you know, I think that the issue, I think the the idea that Horowitz had to some degree that the highlight show is is dead, not only is correct, but even what ESPN's been doing here lately kind of plays that out. I mean, nobody could watch like SC six and say, oh yeah. That's that's Sports Center. It's not Sports right. Center. If it didn't have the Sports Center branding on it, um, I don't know that people would really pay that much attention to it. You know, right. and so, um, so I think that the idea to go in a different direction was right. Now the question has to be: Okay, where, what direction do you go in? And I, I don't know that there's a good answer for it right now because who do the, what do they have in, in terms of like studio personnel set up? I mean, they've. Their, their original idea was, oh, you know, we're going to be the fun alternative to ESPN. That they decided to leave behind because it wasn't getting them ratings. Then it was, we're going to be the edgy opinion debate thing. Well, mm-hmm. now the guy that wanted that is gone, and the idea that you're going to hire somebody else who's able to execute that vision is unlikely. Um, so, what do you? I don't know. This is where I. This is where I'm not sure what the next direction is. I, you know, I. I guess my argument to them would be the argument I'd make to any network that isn't ESPN, which is, you know, forget about the fact that you're a cable company and try to re-envision yourself as an entirely online entity that just happens to broadcast stuff on television. You know, Mm -hmm. like ratings certainly are important, but your ratings are going to primarily come from your live sporting events. So figure out how to rejigger everything else that you're doing around this concept of direct to the audience when they want it rather than trying to time segment things in the way that you've always had to with cable. How do you get to that point? I'm not hundred percent certain, but I think that's the direction they're going to have to go given they're being forced to jump horses midstream right now. I just, you know, and, and you know, you're talking about how they were kind of identifying themselves and, you know, lately they kind of became the, we are the conservative or the non-liberal ESPN place for sports talk. Cause you know, ESPN's liberal, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, you know, like you said, they, they, they're in pretty good shape with their live broadcasts and, and their rights and their properties. They're, 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 they, they have a good, they have a good li- library. They have a good setup of that. 
I just, I, I, and when I think long term, I love your idea of you got to think that you're online first and you also happen to broadcast sports. I think that's a good kind of inversion of the traditional thing. I just think that when you set yourself up and, and, and the, you know, the problem they've always had, I feel like, is they're always defining themselves by how they're not ESPN. Well, we're the cool ESPN. We're the we're the more opinionated ESPN. We can go hot takeier than ESPN can go. And I don't know. I, I just don't feel like that's a good long-term strategy to always kind of define yourself by we're not the other guy. We're not the behemoth. And, you know, especially when you have something like ESPN. And I think I was talking to somebody about this last week that sports is unique in this way because, to me, so much of sports news and sports coverage and what sports has is – I think I said I was commodified. And by that, I mean it scores. It traditionally, it scores, it's highlights, it's news, it's, you know, you know, standard, standard stuff that, and the, and the thing is ESPN does all that. ESPN is still a place where you can, you know, it's, it's the problem. Any of these other outlets, whether it's Fox sports, whether it's Yahoo, whether it's anybody else is kind of getting into, I think is that, ESPN is not just good at what they do, but they're so top of mind and so kind of dominant in the network that I don't go to Fox Sports unless I'm watch, literally watching a game on Fox Sports, like uh, an actual a game. I don't seek them out. I don't necessarily seek out ESPN, but I will, you know, once a day maybe to check a score or something, go to ESPN or check a head, or check headlines and something like that. I'll go to ESPN where I wouldn't go to other sites. And I don't know. I, I just – I, I – I, I don't know how they I, – I feel like maybe in a way this – I'm not a terrible business strategist. This is kind of showing. But I think you kind of give up trying to fight ESPN, you know. The only way you could do that, like Yahoo could do that when they had Woj. You know, it was like the – you're going to get we'll, – we'll have NBA news faster and better than a lot of – than ESPN for, you know, arguably. You know, that's what Yahoo could compete on. But that, you know, now well, Woj but I, my reaction there was wasn't that you were wrong because okay. you're right. It was that it didn't matter. Right? Like, no. Yeah. That. Yeah. You yeah, know. And, and but I think. But I think. I think Yahoo and ESPN, frankly, are kind of in different businesses. I mean, they both oh, traffic in sports news, but but uh, what no one cared what Yahoo did. I mean, it, like it didn't matter that that Yahoo broke ESPN news when they had Woj. It was simply that they broke – like Woj was breaking ESPN news or was breaking right. NBA news, and that was that. Right. With Fox, I think it's a little different. I think your your point is well taken, that they're always comparing themselves to ESPN. And you take something like NBC Sports, for instance. They've done a pretty good job of carving their own niche out that isn't ESPN. But I also think NBC Sports has a lot lower – aims than Fox does like Fox legitimately considers himself to be a major sports network and I think for good reason but Mm -hmm. you're always going to have to measure yourself up uh, against the top just like you know any like you know Bloomberg's gonna have to compare itself to CNBC you know I mean it's it's like those are the those are the things you have to do if you're going in the traditional television environment you know so I think I think the idea behind what Fox has to do at this point is if you're you can't necessarily beat ESPN at their game because they just have they have too much of a financial advantage and they have too much of an existing brand advantage in the television space. But I think mm-hmm. if you get out of the television space from the standpoint of competition and you focus it on the internet space and the way that people interact with information there, then 
you know, I, you know, this is where it gets dangerous to talk about this stuff because when I make a statement like, I think Fox kind of had the right idea in marketing personalities. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had the right idea in the personalities they chose to market. No, no, absolutely. They had the right idea, the wrong personnel to throw right. to to back that up. But yeah. Right. And I even and I don't even think that they had the wrong idea in terms of like trying to market the debate concept. Because look, this is this is where the idealism of, of sports journalism kind of runs into the reality of the marketplace, which is that people appreciate sports journalism. They get wrapped up in sports debate and analysis. Like that's that's always been at least in the in the recent television era, that's been what we found. We see it on social media as well. I mean, you know, the the you know the stuff yesterday with Gordon Hayward that generated some interest because there was a lot of news around it. But what's generated far more clicks, far more eyeballs is the the you know the all the thought pieces about what this means in the larger world sure. of the NBA and the CBA and the way things are set up today. Um, you're not abrogating your news responsibilities by also having those other things. And I think that right. it's trying to strike that balance that's important. So Right. And I think that, you know, that that's a good way of sports journalism that should be evolving away from kind of like that just where Gordon Hayward is going. Like you break that story. Now you've got to be able to do a good think piece on it, a good analysis on it, a good trend story, whether that's through, you know, reporting and kind of going back through and, piecing the decision or thinking through what it may, or, you know, however, however you do that, I think that's good. I think you're right. I think, you know, Fox sports, like you said, they're, they're virtuing into a uh, kind of, Hey, Hey dogs, um, kind of cliche of themselves. <laughs> he's, um, he's literally on the other side of the house right now. That's so amazing. That's, that's great. That's, um, a, that's a good dog right there. But I think they are kind of getting into the parody of themselves because of the, the, these specific personalities that they've kind of thrown their weight behind. And it's kind of this all or nothing thing. And I don't know. I don't see that as being super strong. Like I, I, I like, like you said, I think the big idea, the macro idea on it is legit and good, but it's one of those things that I think could get sullied because they put the, they bet on, they're betting on the wrong, if they're betting on the wrong horses and people get tired of that kind of personality driven, then it becomes harder and harder to, I think, well, course correct. And to, the, like maybe to wrap this topic up and get to our last one, there's a, the quote at the end of the Deitch piece I think is interesting. One current Fox Sports staffer remains hopeful that a management change at the top of FS1 will set things on a better course heading forward. Quote, there are a lot of us who hope you'll see more synergy and more promotion of the games during the week, the staffer said. ESPN's great at that. We have not been. There's been a divide between the two sides, and hopefully that changes. And, you know, and really, I think that that's what it comes down to. I mean, you know, there, there's always been um, – we've talked in the past about the tension between the promotional side of ESPN, the marketing side, and the uh, the journalism side, or the entertainment side and the journalism side. But at the end of the day, they were able to promote – you know, everything pretty well. And I think, like I said, Fox has got a lot of good properties. They just, there's a real disconnect between how they do one and how they do the other. So I look, I think competition's good. Uh, I think jobs are good. So I hope that we see FS1 and FS2 uh, able to put things together and, and maybe be more consistent and and free Katie Nolan while they're at it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Where's she been? She hasn't done anything in forever. And we need, uh, we need more. She she tweeted some snark at Skip Bayless a couple of days ago. Uh, that, All right. so we know she's alive at least. That's good. That's, okay, yes. good. 
Good, very good. All right, so now we can get to my existential crisis. Please. Um, so we are, so my wife and I, we, one of our weekend projects this long weekend was uh, finally cleaning out and organizing our basement, which you can kind of see the work behind me if you're on the live stream. Um, First, I thought and, you were at like a Don Pablo's or, you know, one of those restaurants <laughs> that has like the industrial ceilings in it. No, you, you know, one of these days I'm going to do a throwback episode where I'm in the laundry room. Um, throw back to season two. Um, and so we're, and, and, and like our basement was just a debacle. It was like the room in your house where, where all the, the crap accumulates and you just throw stuff in the basement and boxes and memory boxes and stuff. So we've been brutally going through stuff, clearing it out, making, and we're doing a garage sale either this weekend or whenever. And so one of the things we got to is we, uh, maybe a year ago, so ago, we went through and took it all, got all our CDs and put them in one of those enormous kind of like plastic $5 Walmart bins, brought it downstairs, put them in the basement and we're finishing up. And my wife goes, okay, I got a project for you. Okay. What's next? She pointed at the CD bin. I'm like, we're not getting rid of the CDs. She's like, why not? We're getting rid of the CDs. What are we, what are we get? Why are we getting rid of the CDs? Why can't we keep them? And of all the things that we went through in the basement, like stuff that might, you know, baby clothes, baby toys, books, like relationship milestone stuff, everything was, you know, we were brutal. You know, we're being brutally honest and brutally, you know, pragmatic and stuff. And I get to the CDs and I'm like, I can't let this bin of crappy CDs go. Um, and, and I went through it and there's a lot of crap in there. You know, it's yeah. my, it's my, in late 90s, 2000, Rob Gordon-esque music collection. And so I went through, and finally I, I decided I grabbed, like, a couple, like, I have the Tragically Hip box set that they put out a couple years ago. I grabbed that out of there. And a couple CDs from, like, Friends bands that I literally do not exist in any other realm of, of society or the world except, you know, their basement and my basement. Uh-huh. And I grabbed that, but we're, but, but I, and I'm like, okay, finally. Close the bin, snap it shut. We're getting rid of them. And just, I, I found it so weird because like a lot of that stuff, you know, a lot of the songs I have ripped and saved on hard drives or on iTunes or stuff. So it's not like that. I don't have access to this music anymore. It's not like I listen to CDs, you know, routinely anymore anyway, but it, it was just so striking to me. Like, this is the one thing the, this one piece of physical medium media that I had trouble giving up on. And it got me thinking about like, you know, how we consume, how we own music. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before in here, but I'm a, we're a Spotify uh, family plan household. So we have the $15 a month. And we all have our individual Spotify accounts and you can download. And, you know, Spotify is wonderful. You know, whether it's Apple, you use Apple Music or Spotify, you know, your, your, your mileage may vary. It doesn't really matter. But it, it, it just got me thinking, like, how little we need to own music anymore, but still like, that's the one thing that was that, that I got to throw that I got to give away or to sell. And it's like, Oh, that's like a, that was like a dagger to the, to the, to the heart a little bit to, to go through and to go through and, and, and to kind of realize that, you know, part of it is this big collection that I'd collated and, you know, put a lot of thought and time and effort into. And it meant a lot to me is now just, you know, stuff I can find on Spotify as just as easy as that. So I don't know. It just, it was, it was a weird moment to realize that the thing I seemed to care about most in my basement was my, my CD collection. I don't think that's weird at all. I mean, I, I have not gotten rid of my CD collection. I don't plan on doing so at any point either, but I've got room to keep it. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I love Spotify. I'm a big Spotify guy. Um, but I also do believe still in, having the ability to own physical copies of media. Cause right. you know, I mean, all it takes is like 
Martin Screlly or, or some, you know, dot com asshole to buy Spotify and, and take the whole thing offline. And all of a sudden, like, we're back in 1990 again. Yeah. And, you know, and so uh, maybe maybe I shouldn't think that way. I mean, the, the chances of going backwards at this point are almost non-existent. But uh, if I've already bought the CDs, I might as well go ahead and keep them, even though the quality is not great. No. Nah. Uh, you know, comparatively speaking, uh, it's, um, you know, it's nice to have them around. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, like, I also collect vinyl. I've got like 800 different records uh, downstairs, vinyl records that I've either collected or actually I've bought many here uh, over Mm -hmm. the course of the last, you know, few years. I've started collecting again because I got my turntable working. But um, I do think for young people, like my daughter likes music. She doesn't know music per se, but she dances around to it and she likes Mm -hmm. a bunch of different kinds. I do think that there's there's a certain like mental connection that one makes when you have a tangible physical item that you can hold um and you know i say that as someone who has far more music digitally than they do uh i have a i have a ridiculous amount of music anyway but i have far more music digitally than i do in cd or vinyl form mm-hmm. um you know but i do think it's it's cool to have something that you can hold in your hand and and see artwork and you know have something that you can connect to the sounds that you're hearing. And I mean, you know, even though the CD was kind of a poor substitute for vinyl from that perspective, mm-hmm. uh, I do think it served a useful purpose. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't recall anybody having the same sorts of reactions that you're having to giving up your CD collection when they had to give up cassette tapes. Right. Like, you know, like the, it's not the same thing. Um, there is a certain kind of, of weight weightiness, I guess. To I found CDs. one. There you go. Yeah, look at that. I have I have a cassette tape now. Here's what's funny. It's unlabeled. It's a TDK D90. You know, one of the standard tapes that we made stuff on in the 90s and 2000s. I literally have no way of playing this thing. I don't have a tape deck in this house. I mean, you know, I haven't listened to cassettes, but I'm keeping it because it's literally right now my last cassette. So I figure I feel like this is like the one that you have to keep watch. It's probably like a really terrible mix of like. Soundgarden and uh, I don't know Sixpence None the Richer Dashboard Confessional or some other midnight <laughs> early two thousand. I, I do emo. have working tape decks, so if you want to send it to me and have me digitize it for you and then send it back, I'm happy. No, to do I, so. I, I think what I think what I'll do is I'll save it for when I come to Bloomington for IAX, and when we oh, have our okay. live episode, we can we can unveil we can do a live playing of it. And God, I hope it's not me. It's not a real one of my radio tapes from college because that that's be going to end poorly. That was the greatest one word for it, yeah. Uh, but no, I I do know what you mean about about the idea of owning music. But it is funny, like it, you know, one of the the interesting things about having a kid is, especially in this kind of technological era, is seeing them kind of grow up with this new with in a digital world. You know, not even as natives, but as knowing literally nothing else. Like you know, one of the reasons we have a, a, a Spotify family is my daughter. Who's six and a half, six and three quarters? She uh, has her own account on on Spotify. She has Spotify on her iPad, and she listens to it. And you know, can you get this for me on Spotify? She asked me, you know, for songs. And and you know, by th- by that stance, it's great because you know when she has the the momentary love of a movie or a TV show, I don't have to spend either even a dollar or God forbid fifteen dollars on a. CD that she'll listen to a few times and then move on to the next thing. It's just a song that you download that you can take off her iPad and, and, and flip off. But it's always interesting for me, you know, with our students, but it, even with my kid to see like 
they don't really, you know, the mu- music is just something that's always available through these services. And it's not like, well, I own this, you know, this thing and it's precious and it's this the first tragically hip cd i ever had or something like that i should note too doggies in the house um i should note too that we um well the the big the big bin of cds that we're going through we had gotten rid of all the jewel cases and the liner notes when we sorted them about a year and a half ago so it's literally just a bin of cds wow so we don't even have the artwork on there so that makes it a little easier to give up right because they're probably scratch the hell and you know you don't have even that so what are you going to do with them so what i think the plan is we're going to take the bin up to the garage shell and it's you know i don't there are hundreds of cds in there varying from you know never mind all the way to there's a fifi dobson cd in there and all you know all manner in between (laughs) um and i think we're going to do like 25 bucks you know maybe like a a quarter a piece 50 cents a, a buck a piece or 25 bucks and you take the thing and it's yours Wow. So. I, uh, I wish I had an inventory of this. I might cherry pick some stuff out of there at this point. But, uh, <laughs> I don't have the time or the energy or, or the, oh God, I don't want to see what's in there. Cause there's a lot of, Oh, really pretentious, bad brunch rock and, and guitar rock from the two thousands. Really, really bad stuff. That's so great. musical tastes have improved since then. That's so. funny. Well, uh, you know, we wish you the best of luck with this major change, Brian. And, <laughs> um, you know, we'll uh, we'll be here for you if you. I appreciate this. I appreciate that the flip side community holds me up in times of trouble like this, and I do appreciate that. Well, we'll be back next week with more flip side podcasting. We'll be uh, looking for topics. So if you want to tweet at us at flipside pod at Doctor GC at BP Moritz, and uh, you can catch us on YouTube every week, and also catch us on iTunes, mm-hmm. and um, that's Flipside Podcast. Just search for us there. Yeah. Um, Brian, any final thoughts? No, I'm good. Thanks for everyone for uh, being flexible on uh, on the holiday weekend. Holiday weekend. Uh, we'll talk to you. Guys. Looking forward to next week. Yeah, we'll uh, keep it cool until then, and we'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long, everybody. <laughs>